This morning, I'd like to have you turn to Matthew chapter 28. and read to you the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's not going to be our main text. Nonetheless, I think it's important for us to read it and to catch a few things in it that pertain to the theme of this morning's message. Do you fear man? Or do you fear God? In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. And did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. It is always my desire on Resurrection Sunday to speak on the wonders of God's power to raise His only begotten Son, 
our Lord and Savior, Savior Jesus Christ from the dead and to declare with great joy and gladness that the tomb borrowed for that weekend is now and will ever be empty. This day is always to be a reminder to every believer in Jesus Christ that we are to rejoice in his resurrection, not just one day out of the year, but every day of every year with every breath and with every beat of our redeemed hearts. All that said, the Lord has impressed upon my heart today to touch upon a subject that is not altogether a theme normally affixed to this feast day for the church, but one that will bring us back to the cross, to the empty tomb, and to the reason that there are still many empty hearts, even in those that may attend church on a regular basis. If we take just a cursory look at the title of this message, Do You Fear Man or Do You Fear God? We might think it could be covered by just a couple of verses of text that we read earlier. The women who were greeted by the angels and they feared because of what they saw, yet they were told, do not be afraid. Or the fear of the soldiers as to what would happen to them because the very fact that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb, that something happened and they were certainly awakened by it. Yet they feared man. But how ironic that they actually had a testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead in a supernatural way. Yet they still feared man. The woman and the women who were greeted as well to tell the disciples that Jesus was alive and that he would meet them in Galilee. They feared God. But actually, I'd like to turn to a pre-crucifixion, a pre-resurrection account before coming back to our grand theme of Jesus' resurrection. And that is what takes place in the previous chapter, in chapter 27. And I'd like to draw your attention to verses 15 through 26 this morning. 15 through 26. Beginning at verse 15, now at, <clears throat> excuse me, now at that feast, the governor, who we know as, as Pilate, the governor was wont, which means he was accustomed to releasing unto the people a prisoner, whom they would. In other words, who, whatever prisoner they, they wanted, the people. And they had then a notable prisoner. And by the way, the word notable here means notorious literally means notorious. It means that this person has, uh, is, is known for his bad behavior. That is where we get the word notoriety from, the very same Greek word. They had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. And therefore when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Messiah, Christ. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. 
When he was set down on the judgment seat, which is called the Bema, his wife, Pilate's wife, sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. The governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing but that Rather, a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. And then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Isn't that an amazing statement? That they took the responsibility for the death of Jesus Christ upon themselves. In fact, they were also taking upon themselves the guilt for this. Amazing statement. And then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Before we connect the dots between this account and the resurrection of Jesus, let me point out a few thought-provoking peculiarities concerning the person mentioned named Barabbas, whose significant and consequential appearance was necessary to record in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention Barabbas. We're initially made aware that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner who was convicted and sentenced to death for being an insurrectionist and a murderer, having killed someone in a riotous revolt. We also know that he was scheduled to be executed, no doubt, by Roman crucifixion, along with no less than two other death row criminals next to it. Knowing this, still we don't know much else about this man except for his name, Barabbas, or Barabbas, which just literally means son of a father. Now think about that for a minute. Son of a father. That's all we know about his name. Now we know that in the culture of the Middle East, both in the Jewish culture and in the Arabic culture, and even to this day in many cases, any name given to a person, specifically in this case a man, is characteristic of the nature of that man. If that is the case, then the significance of his name plays an important contrast to Jesus in all four Gospels, because he's mentioned in all four Gospels. A contrast to Yeshua, the only begotten son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name means God, is salvation. 
Which brings up another interesting point. There are a number of modern translations that will either put in the text or place in the margins of the text a note that says that the older manuscripts include the name Jesus to Barabbas. Hence, his name is rendered by these quote-unquote older manuscripts as Yeshua bar Abbas, Jesus Barabbas, which arouses even more curiosity. In any event, the mention of the name of Barabbas is, is vague and unclear at best because obviously any son is a son of a father, whether we even knew our father at all. Any son is the son of a father, but whose father is he the son of? We certainly know who Jesus' father is. Jesus spoke of his father often. He spoke of coming from his father to do the will of his father, who the Jewish people were really supposed to know who his father was. He always made it clear. Now, today we have family names and given names. Sometimes you hear somebody's name and you say, give it back. I'm just kidding, just kidding. I'm just trying to see if you're awake and listening to me. But we have family names and we have given names, names given to us after our fathers or mothers or someone significant in our families. All of this is for association. We're given names for association. Take, for example, in the Bible, James and John, the disciples of Jesus. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. But there was another James, and he was James, the son of Alphaeus. And that's just to name a couple in Scripture. You see, we associate James and John to the family of Zebedee. We associate the singular James to make clear reference to each one as the son of Alphaeus. But here's why I'm mentioning this. Why is it that we are not given Barabbas' father's name? Now, this is just a thought. Okay, you got this signature here that I'm giving you? This is just a thought. Don't throw anything at me here in about two or three minutes. It's just a thought, so bear with me. But for all we know, it could be because Barabbas might be of his father, the devil. Now just hold on. Put that Bible down that you go through at me. Think of what Jesus said to the Jews who were criticizing him and scrutinizing him back in John chapter 8. And they were proudly saying, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them in John 8, 44, You or ye are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
It is quite possible that the absence of Barabbas' father's name was deliberately left out by the Holy Spirit for this one reason. When it comes right down to it, we were or are all Barabbas. In effect, we were or are, uh, I should say we were or are on death row, waiting execution, waiting death for the breaking of God's perfect law. Now, I've made a distinction here. I say we were or are. And I say that only because God, God is the only one who knows every heart in this place. I don't. But I know that those who have already come to Jesus Christ, those who have, have confessed believing in him as everything that is said to us in his word is true, and we've received Christ into our lives, we were there. We've been there already. But there may be some of you who are still there and not know the preciousness of salvation through Jesus. This may be the day that you'll come to realize your need for him. So when it comes right down to it, we were or are all Barabbas. We were or are on death row, waiting execution, punishment, for breaking God's perfect law. Now, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19, makes some statements that are of great importance for all of us, for believers to remember the things that Christ has done on our behalf, for us to be able to rejoice in this day over the resurrection. For others, it is to take hold of the very truth that says, listen, if you don't know Jesus, you need to come to know him, because of what he came to do on this earth was for you and done on your behalf in taking your place on the cross. Paul says in verse 10, as it is written, and this is Romans 3, verse 10, quoting from Psalm 14, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Because you see, the world, for the most part, when the world thinks about God, they say, well, you know what, you know, uh, God is the father of all, you know, he's, he's, it's the fatherhood of God and the, uh, you know, and the brotherhood of man, you know, that's, that's that kind of all-inclusive thing that the world has in their minds. They believe that there's some good in everybody. But what the Bible teaches us, that once man fell in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3, None of us were born with any good. Let me remind those of you who have been here before and those who may not have been, but uh, let me say to you that uh, uh, if you ever raised any children, one of the first things that they finally start saying when they're able to say anything is mine. Mine. They're born with a very selfish heart. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. We didn't know all the truth about Jesus. In fact, for the most part, we tried to reject it. We didn't want to listen to it. We enjoyed the life that we were living without all of this stuff about God and Christ. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together 
uh, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. Listen, maybe you never murdered anybody, or maybe you never really said any bad things to people. That, that didn't matter. One thing was for sure. You weren't born a believer in Jesus Christ. And any sin that you may have had in your life or in your heart would be the only one sin that could take you straight to eternal punishment and hell. So what you had in common with everybody else that had destruction and misery in their ways and their feet swift to shed blood, and their mouth full of cursing and all, is that there was no peace in your heart. The way of peace have they not known. And here's one reason why, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I think I failed to warn you at the very beginning that this is not going to be a very, uh, you know, this is not an Easter bunny message. Just letting you know, even though it's a little late now. I hope it's, it's a message to awaken you. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Paul says. Now we know that whatsoever or what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. For the most part, as, as people walking this world, we were walking physically, but we were dead spiritually. Therefore, we didn't think that we were guilty. We didn't want to think that we were guilty of anything wrong. We try to be good. We try to keep the law for the most part. The fact of the matter is, we weren't keeping God's law. And a few verses later, Paul tells us that all have sinned. Verse 23. All have sinned. There's only been one person born on this earth that, hasn't, that didn't sin. That was Jesus Christ himself. But as for everybody else, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A few chapters later in Romans 6.23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death. When it comes right down to it, there is a price to pay for this guilt. There is a price to pay before a holy God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is hope. That is salvation. That is what we need. That is what we cried out to God for when we came to the realization that we were indeed guilty and that we needed a Savior. Consider, if you will, that Barabbas was able to hear. Listen, in his cell, he was able to hear the commotion that the crowd was making outside of his cell, knowing that this was his day to be executed for his crimes. He could hear the people say, Barabbas! He might not have been able to hear Pilate say, so who do you want to release? But they heard, he heard Barabbas! So at some point it was possible he heard his name being shouted by the multitude, but no, not knowing the reason. It is also quite possible that he could only hear his name mentioned along with the phrase, crucify him. Because remember, Pilate said in between all of that, he said, now what, what do you want me to do with Jesus? 
Crucify him. What did Barabbas hear? Barabbas, crucify him. I cannot even begin to imagine what was going through his mind at that moment of truth. I don't know that any of us have ever been on death row, but I'm sure that that experience is not one that anybody would ever in any way envy, especially on the day of execution. What was in his mind? What were his words? I'm going to be tortured soon. And then I'm going to be put to death. See, it wasn't humane back then like what we say we do now. But when they come for Barabbas, it wasn't to prepare him for execution. He could hear the soldiers marching down the corridor in those dark, dank cells. But they weren't coming to take him to the cross. But if we were given the opportunity to pronounce his new status, if we were given that opportunity, would we say, Barabbas, son of a father, good news for you. The true son of the father, God himself, the true father. It is the true son of that father, Yeshua. God is salvation, who is paying the death penalty in your place, and you're now free. Now, people could only speculate and conjecture what happens to Barabbas following this reprieve. I know movies have been made. What was Barabbas thinking? And then we kind of give him thoughts to follow. We don't have those thoughts in the scriptures. But some have asked the questions. Was Barabbas such a, possibly such an ingrate and, and void of appreciation and gratitude that he didn't even take the time to climb Golgotha to see and to thank Jesus for taking his place? Or did he push his way through the crowds and up that rocky hill until he reached the cross that was meant for him? Did he gaze into the face of the one who took the nails and whose blood streamed down his face and his body? Did he hear the words of Jesus? Was he even close enough to hear the words of Jesus? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And weep for mercy from the very God who substituted his precious son on Barabbas' cross. I believe it would be more than fair to say that as we're connecting the dots from Barabbas to the resurrection of Jesus, 
that the last chapter of Barabbas' story, as it were, is symbolically being written by every one of us as a Barabbas. The question is, will it end by pushing ourselves up that hill until we reach the cross? Will it end with us calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus who paid for our salvation on the cross meant for us? Or will our last chapter end in ingratitude, dismissing the cross of Christ with some sort of satanic pride? The end of our chapters will be determined by our fear of either men or the Lord. There's one person we need to return to in this whole scenario. That's the person of Pontius Pilate. Pilate's story was was determined by his fear of man, not his fear of the Lord. Pilate was trapped by his circumstances between Rome and the religious leadership of the Jews, which jeopardized his loyalty to Rome and his his future. And so he consented to the pressure, and in so doing, he sealed his fate when he washed his hands and says to the Jews, you, you do it. How many people today are wanting to wash their hands of this very special day and the events of it as not being true as not being meaningful. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about Pilate. He said, Oh, the daring of Pilate, thus in the sight of God, to commit murder and disclaim it. There is a strange mingling of cowardliness and courage about many men. They are afraid of a man, but not afraid of the eternal God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I heard a, a, a wonderful preacher many, many years ago say something that never left my mind. It was a very simple statement, but one of the most profound statements I had ever heard at the time and still continue to hear. And the statement is, there's only one way to heaven. There are many ways to hell. And all of that determined by either our fear of man or our fear of God. Pilate's wife, on the other hand, does just the opposite. She so feared the Lord, she tells Pilate to have nothing to do with this innocent man. 
And Spurgeon says of her, whatever it was, she had suffered repeated painful emotions in the dream, and she awoke startled and amazed. Most dreams we quite forget. A few we mention as remarkable, and only now and then one is impressed upon us so that we remember it for years. Scarcely have any of you had a dream which made you send a message to a magistrate upon the bench. I mentioned last night, I, I said, <laughs> that, would, that would be like someone, you know, having a dream and, and all of a sudden needing to get to a judge that's already sitting down there at, at, the, at the county courts and, and having a, you know, the bailiff run a note up to him and says, don't judge this person. I said, that's not going to happen. Until I talked to a judge last night, he said, it happened one time. I said, Wow. <laughs> But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But it happened here. It happened here. Have nothing to do with this man. Because the church, for the most part, has lost a reverent fear of the Lord and a reverential respect for the Word of God, many people do not believe in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I know that is a very pointed statement. But let me say to you that the personal testimony and the personal witness that we have in Jesus Christ is that significant to the world. And if the world sees the church doing what they're doing in many cases, doing the things that they're doing, in setting aside the word of God, in trying to be politically correct, in trying to be uh, culturally inclusive. Folks, we, we did not check you at the door to see what you believed. We wanted you to come in to hear the gospel today. We wanted you to come in to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But the gospel is clear. Our God is unchanging. The word of God is clear. Our God is immutable. He never changes. Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. He never changes. His word doesn't change. Times may change. But the law of God remains the same. The word of God remains the same. It takes courage to stand on the word of God that way especially when everything else is changing to the effect that, that uh, it's watering down the truth of the gospel. Some people today probably consider the word fear as politically incorrect. But I want you to listen and read and take heed to these verses from the book, books of Proverbs and Psalms. Where it says in Proverbs 1 verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And what people need to understand is the fear of the Lord is totally different than the kind of fears that we have of things and times and processes and chaos and conflict in the world. The fear of the world is terror. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Because the word fear, as it pertains to the Lord, is 
reverence and respect and worship unto God, unto a holy God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We begin to know the things that God wants us to know when we bow ourselves to a holy God. Proverbs 8, verses 13 through 17. And by the way, we could go on and on with these passages on, on, on fear. But Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. But if the world redefines what is evil and what is good, to the point that they say that the evil is good and good is evil, which is the, way, which is the, the very attitude of, of the world today in our, in our day and time. But the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. But then he says, I love them that love me. And those that seek me early shall find me. And it comes down to the very heart of every person in this place and every person in this world. What you choose. You read down, as a matter of fact, you don't have to turn there, but if you can remember to read down to Proverbs chapter 1, down to, I believe it's uh, verse 29. I'm going to get there because I want to make sure that, that I quote it properly. Yeah, verse 29, for, they that, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So, you see, it's the things, the choices that we make. Talking about those that rejected the truth or had no regard for the truth, had no regard for the Lord. But I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Early and earnestly. Psalm 138, Psalm 138, verse 6 says, Though the Lord be high, yet has he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off, which is interesting. He, the proud he knows from a distance. He doesn't draw near to the proud. He draws near to the lowly. He draws near to the humble. He draws near to the meek. In fact, James tells us that in his letter in the church to the church. Draw near unto God, and he'll draw near to you. Psalm 145, verses 18 through 21. The Lord is nigh or near unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. I mean, you can call upon him, you know, just to ask him for something. But if you call upon him in truth, based upon his truth, based upon his love, based upon his word, he'll draw near to you. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. Notice that fear him. You have to choose to fear the Lord. He also will hear the cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Don't get the picture that God just sits there saying, I can't wait to destroy the wicked. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is in scriptures in the book of Ezekiel. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
This is why he sent his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We don't learn that quote to, you know, to earn a, a, you know, a, a lollipop in, in Sunday school. We need to learn what it means. My mouth shall seek the praise, or my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Isaiah 55, verse 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Now's that time. Now is the accepted time of salvation. Now, today. Not between now and next Easter, or between now and Christmas. Too many of us live our lives based on those two holidays. But in fact, we disregard the Lord for the rest of the year, and that's not a good thing. Because it shows a disregard for his word. To the very, to the very point that we are disobedient. God's word says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as, as, as is the manner of some. We are to gather together, worship the Lord, encourage one another, serve one another until that day. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. One day he won't be near. I pray that you will fear God and not man. If you've never prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, listen to the words of Paul. I leave you with this because I want you to be encouraged, not discouraged. You might say, that's too late. No, it's not. It's not too late at all. I didn't say the things that I said to you because I want to be known as a fiery preacher. If you've never been here before, be here long enough, you know that I have one desire, and that is to love you by sharing with you the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sharing the love of God to you through his word. But my heart has been heavy because we know Jesus is coming soon. Yet many people's lamps are not turned on. They're not ready. So, Paul says in verse 9 of Romans 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness. Notice, where with the heart man believes unto righteousness. That means that our lives have to change. We believe unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. 
There was a time when we weren't ashamed of our sins until the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ shined so brightly upon us that all we could see was our sin. And this is why our eyes were open so that we could cry out to the Lord because someone had told us, listen, you need Jesus Christ in your life. And while we might have been able to tell them for a long time, listen, I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear all about this Jesus stuff. You're a Jesus freak, whatever you are. I don't want to hear about it, but at some point you come to the realization that indeed you are a sinner separated from God. And what separated you was your sin. The scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We've come to the Lord and the Lord forgave us and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. We have nothing to be ashamed about. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek or the Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You shall be saved. At one time we were all Barabbas. At one time, we had that very same attitude of heart, rebellious, disobedient. And while our name may have attached us in association to a family, the actions of our heart made it clear that we were only of our father, the devil. And by the way, you don't have to have an association with the devil for him to accept you into his work. But then we hear the word of Jesus that says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus says, associate with me. Take on you my name, my yoke. Be linked to me. I'll carry you. Quit carrying the world on your back. Quit carrying the weight of your sins on your shoulders until next Easter. Quit thinking that this day is all about the Easter bunny and eggs and candy and all of that. All of that's going to pass. What doesn't pass is our eternity. Our eternity is either going to be with God or separated from God forever. And we choose. In this, in this one respect, we choose. We choose to either fear man 
and what somebody else is telling you. Ah, don't believe those Christians. Or you fear God. Who says there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. But I've already sent my son. And he's already paid the price. And he has set you free if you believe and confess and receive and accept the truth that my son died on a cross, shed his blood, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive.